Welcome to the In The Zone podcast with Mike Ryder and Josh Hughes. This podcast may contain swearing, plus it will be filled with lots of interesting chat. All the views are expressed to our own and are not those of our institutions or employers. You're welcome to share your own views in the comment box on the website. And if you like what you hear, please like, share and subscribe. And you can find out more on our website, innerzonepodcast.com. Or on Spotify, iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also like us on Facebook. So, without further ado, here's this week's episode. Hello and welcome to the In The Zone podcast with me, Mike Ryder. And me, Josh Hughes. In today's episode, we're going to talk about eco-fascism. Is that right, Josh? Yeah, so it's a, it's a term that's um, arisen, oh, it's been around for a little while, I think, but it's kind of come to prominence a bit with the ongoing pandemic. Um and so it's the idea that um, well, it's, it's sort of it links with ideas, sort of ecological ideas, should we say, that um, human beings overconsume because um, that's just something that human beings are. That's some, something that human beings do naturally. Like this idea that human beings are a virus and coronavirus. Um, by keeping human beings inside is um, allowing the natural world to kind of take its natural course, um, and you know the earth is healing type of type of idea. Um, which I mean, I've no doubt that a, a reduction in you know driving and, and fossil fuels from petrol cars and um, vast amounts of train travel and air travel and stuff is is going to do some good for the environment, but the idea but the, what turns it into eco-fascism is the idea that human beings are sort of necessarily over consumers and that they should sort of be um it, coronavirus wouldn't the idea wouldn't following from eco-fascism the idea would be that coronavirus isn't a bad thing if it kills a lot of people because that would reduce the consumption of, of the globe right so obviously that's quite that's quite extreme um and it sort of it plays on this idea that you know there aren't enough resources yeah where which is true in terms of the am- amount of consumption that is that happens in the western world but isn't necessarily true of human beings in and of its you know as a, as for all human beings because think about like indigenous populations who you know, obviously lived for thousands and thousands of years um, in harmony, shall we say, with um, with nature and sort of the idea being we'll just we'll use what we need but won't use too much because, you know, nature is our habitat and we need to look after it in order to have good, meaningful, long lives because what's the point in over-consuming if you're going to destroy your habitat? So kind of the idea of eco-fascism being based in this sort of concept of overpopulation and, uh, and resource consumption as a an, overconsumption as sort of as a necess- as a necessary kind of element of, of human of humanity it just kind of it seems very um also, well obviously it's western centric but it's also short-sighted in terms of it only it's only true in terms of kind of western um yeah, sort of Western trend, if you will. What's the, what, not a trend, it's, it's not really a trend, is it? It's um, 
from the West, well, it's true from the Western perspective, but only to the extent that you've looked at the practices that have happened in the West. Right. So there's a couple of different things that sort of seem to come from this. I mean, you've got the question of whether or not we are over-consuming and whether this is actually normal human behaviour. Then I guess you've got this other question that's a sort of separate thing, which is why the fascism comes in of, well, um, things like this virus are a good thing because we need to thin our numbers out. Yeah. And so that's where it becomes problematic. Um, though, of course, I think it's fair to say that these things do become more common because there are so many of us, because obviously things like the common cold, flu, things like that, they wouldn't spread so far if it wasn't for the fact we're in close proximity with each other. Because um, that's sort of something that's sort of come along um, since we've sort of moved away from being sort of scavengers and um, sort of sort of so now since we sort of moved into cities, urbanisation, sort of things like that. So, yeah. Yes, there's a number of different sort of areas there we could look at. So what do you what do you think? Yeah, so I mean I think for me the kind of the most problematic aspect of it is is that it's well I suppose it's well the most problematic aspect of it is is the sort of the conclusion that yeah, as you say, thinning of the numbers of uh, thinning of the, the human herd, if you will, would be a good thing from this sort of perspective is is obviously problematic. Um but I suppose it can just the fact that it's also it's based on this idea that all human beings over consume mm. it just it, it just sort of seems to be based on a false premise and i think, think the, uh, but then again you said about your um sort of aboriginal sort of sort of tribes people living in connected with nature but relatively speaking of course they're very few in number compared to the masses and masses we have living in sort of capital cities across the world i mean sort of think about china and you've got india russia america all these sort of places so but then you've also got sort of the increasing consumption of these these up and coming nations like India and China as well. So I don't know. I think maybe to me at least, I think I feel like these the tribes people example is maybe the exception and not the rule. I mean, I'd like to think that we would all behave like that, but I don't know. My yeah. my general experience is maybe that people are driven to consume, and part of that is the problem with capitalism, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think. So for me, it's, what annoys me is, well, you're right in that indigenous populations now probably are the, are the exception rather than the rule, but it's the idea that human beings necessarily, you know, it's part of human nature to overconsume when indigenous populations show that that isn't true. Mm. Um, and it might be, you know, it, so it's not part of human nature, although it, it does seem to be, well, it is part of kind of... Um, western consumer culture mm. and and the influence that's having on china and india and stuff is causing them to over consume like yeah I, I, i'd accept that but i think i think the problem that i have with it or this aspect of it is that it's kind of it's it's the idea that overconsumption is part of human nature i think the i think that the indig indigenous populations prove that that isn't true um but yeah i think as you as you kind of pointed out really that then today being the exception rather than really kind of I don't know it kind of means it's it's not really the what am I trying to say it's not it's not really the the, the point in a way is it um well, human nature but then yeah. if it's even if it is in our nature should surely it should be our job to work around this I mean obviously obviously we've had all this climate change stuff before the sort of coronavirus became the big yeah. issue um 
but obviously we we hope that maybe things are changing but at the same time things are changing very slowly because obviously it's in big businesses interests to carry on as it is um no one likes to pay more because we are ultimately all quite short-termist in our outlook aren't we yeah and i mean we've discussed this a couple of times on the podcast that you know you sometimes read news articles where ceos of big businesses have said that they would love to turn their business into a you know a green eco-friendly business but kind of their uh, you know their shareholders want a profit every quarter and so they kind of can't do that long-term thinking and long-term planning um but yeah i mean i said on a on a more kind of zoomed out level kind of consumption is, is kind of part of the cons- consumption to the point of where you don't really care about the effects is kind of part of capitalism to some degree Mm. Um, and yeah so I mean I think it's perhaps the yeah one of the effects of kind of neoliberalism neoliberal capitalism in that you know that neoliberalism kind of says compete until <laughs> you're, on, you're on top basically doesn't it it's all about the markets well, yeah it's all about the markets and it's all about doing what the market says and competition is part of that it's part of proving to the market that you're doing the right thing isn't it so it kind of says yeah compete until you've got nothing out until you know you've beaten everybody but that competition and that kind of logic obviously results in overconsumption and massive use of resources to a point that isn't sustainable mm. in the long term we've got overproduction um, as well don't forget exactly yeah yeah i mean Kind of, there was always that story in the 90s and the early 2000s about meat mountains and butter mountains and stuff that mm. were being held to keep prices high and stuff like that. And um, I'm not quite sure, sure if that was true. I don't know. Well, maybe it was. That was um, the um, common agricultural policy, wasn't it? Like European subsidies yeah. leading to the famous um, no, yeah, the butter mountains and, and so forth because obviously therefore we're overproducing and it's just getting scrapped essentially which in it which again has environmental impacts but obviously there's no reason for the farmers not to produce it if they can produce it and so actually we're overproducing and over consuming and obviously because labor's cheaper in uh, distant lands we're sort of outsourcing lots of things so consumers are used to low prices and obviously we're not paying fair prices for things and therefore you have sort of the environmental impact and you have the human impact of set or sort of sending our manufacture overseas Yeah, I think, yeah. I mean, that was stuff in it, and sort of the globalization of. of um, I think, I think, kind of the. I suppose eco-fashion rises up from this, um, this or conclusion that something has to change, and I absolutely agree. Something does have to change, and you know whether that's, um, you know, caused whether whether they kind of you come to that conclusion through the climate emergency or whatever. Um, or if coronavirus kind of pushes you to it more more suddenly, um, you know, kind of we can't. It doesn't seem like we can continue, you know, over consuming and over producing and all this kind of stuff at the same time and um, just kind of what should I say like well abusing resources really. Um, so I think it kind of it's um, that kind of. Pr- premise that something has to, ch- has to change kind of you know I, I agree with something does have to change but 
I think what's what's worrying is that um well one that kind of people are quite happy to kind of be a bit soft on it on, on this eco fashion idea that, that we should thin the herd and you know overpopulation is a bad thing so let's just if some if a lot of people die because of coronavirus that's all right that, that's a bit but that doesn't make any sense of course because most of the people initially that were dying were sort of the vulnerable people and the vulnerable people are the people that aren't necessarily reproducing so the, the, the problems would still persist yeah in a sense um yeah i mean it's it's, it's a strange argument um really but you can sort of see how people will say well it's sort of as you say it's, it's the darwinian survival of the fittest and people are going to live and die um but then you're right it's um it's it's, it's, deep, it's, deep, it's deeply problematic, but I can sort of see the angle where they're, they're coming from with that, because they're sort of saying, well, it's the natural world fighting back, as it were. Well, yeah, I mean, you can see the logic, can't you? But it's just, it's the idea of the of the natural world having, being sentient in a, in a sort of global sense that it can fight back. Is, yeah. Um, I mean, do you think that the coronavirus thing will change our general outlook on resource consumption and so on because obviously people are now changing their habits because of the yeah. lockdown when it comes to shopping buying and the things they have in their houses for example you sort of value oh, i mean i'm listening to i was listening to a podcast the other day and um one of the one of the presenters was saying well now they spend so much time in their house they come to realize all the stuff in their house that they don't really look at and they don't really need and so because they're, they're they're exposed to it all the time, they, they realise that it's there and it's just taking up space, basically, and they never needed it in the first place. And I wonder if maybe more people will think of things like that. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, I think one of the things that I think will coronavirus will probably have quite a significant impact is the way we work. Um, you know, lots of jobs that, what, three months ago, you, some bosses would have said, you can't do that from home. You can't work from home. You can't... Um, you know, you've got to go into the office and whatever and but you know obviously now for many people it's been proven that actually they can work from home and they don't need to travel into an office to work at computer when their computer can be at home so i think in that sense consumption of travel resources for travel i think will go down because people won't be if 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 jobs are shown that if it's well what should I say? if if people have shown they can do their job from home then you know they don't need to go into an office and that's going to reduce um consumption of yeah travel resources whether that's trains trains planes and automobiles whatever um so i think that you know that's probably that'll probably have an impact i don't think it's going to be quite i don't know if it'll be significant though mm. because i think for like for me when i was doing my PhD and had my office on campus and and could choose to work from home. And working from home was like a treat, and it was kind of um, you know you in, I enjoyed working from home. Whereas now working from home all the time, uh, well my job is working from home anyway, so it doesn't really <laughs> coronavirus doesn't really impact me on, on quite so much in that sense. But um, you know it feels very strange to have for this for, for working from home to be your only option. Um, so I get the feeling that if perhaps working offices or, or you know, their business has an office and they generally work there, that but they can choose to work from home. I think kind of people would do sometimes, you know, some days of the week, maybe maybe more than they otherwise would. You know, you kind of you hear you hear or you heard about a lot of people who would maybe work from home on a Friday or 
or you know one day a week they work from home whereas now i think maybe that'll be two days three days maybe um so i think it probably would have an impact but you know people will st- people still associate work with going to the, with being in an office quite often don't they so i think i don't think it's necessarily going to be um you know, I still think people will go into offices and will go into work at a communal space. So I think there will be an impact, but probably I don't think it's going to be radical. I don't. I don't think we've, it's going to. Ch- this is going to change the way the way we work. Or I was thinking sense. also, what about people's sort of buying habits, their shopping behaviours, yeah. perhaps as well, um, and maybe their sort of views of maybe sort of the value of exercise as well. I was thinking. Um, because I think what's become obvious is a lot of people are now really making sure they take their hour a day. Whereas in the past, for example, I know lots of people that would just go to their office job, sit in front of their desk for eight hours, go home and never get any exercise. Um, so that in itself can potentially be positive, I think. If people start to value the sort of the local areas of the world around them a bit more, take a bit more pride in these things. I don't, I don't, I don't know, maybe people might be, end up being fitter. I know an hour is not really that long. Yeah. exercise but it, it does make you think doesn't it about how all these things are changing yeah i mean i think i think there's kind of two sides to it in terms of exercise so i think there's yeah as you say people are kind of valuing their one bout of exercise a day more and they want to make the most of it um but also it's not like you know people who are now working from home are you know their commute is what from the bedroom to their living room it's not. I mean, even you know, some people you know they walk to the train station, they walk from the tr- from the train station to their office, and then back again, or wherever. Or they you know they go from their office, they walk to a lunch spot, and then back again. Mm. Um, or is that kind of? It's not quite. I don't know. It's like it's not quite hidden activity. It's not like it's hidden exercise. I don't think it's the right term, but kind of in inherent activity. Yeah. No. You know, I completely, I don't completely really take that point. I mean. So, that is one of the things I noticed when I started doing my PhD was that I was used to commuting to work every day. So I was used to the walk across Canterbury and the walk back every day, plus the lunchtime walk as well. So I was getting a lot more exercise before I started my PhD than I was during my PhD, because basically I was working in my room and I was sleeping in my room, living and working in my room. Like I didn't have to go anywhere. But then at the same time, I suppose you then appreciate the time you get out. It's, it's, it's hard to say, but I'm interested to see where this might take us in terms of like, our view on sort of working life um production consumption and then also maybe sort of how this will affect the environment as well i know we started talking about eco-fascism but obviously i think the issues of coronavirus and all these things are sort of extend far beyond that really don't they yeah we uh, we often meander through podcasts don't we <laughs> um but yeah i mean i think there is um Yeah, I suppose kind of, as I, as I was sort of saying before, you know, the kind of the one of the premises of eco-fascism being that something has to change. Well, I think if if coronavirus does kind of create these sorts of changes that result in us either consuming slightly less, exercising slightly more, um, then in that sense, in that very quite narrow sense, that would it would would have been a good thing. Obviously, kind of that's vastly outweighed by the death and trauma that is that goes along with it it's not particularly i would have said it was worth it necessarily um you know from my perspective on this day but um yeah it's um 
I suppose it kind of it all links in the fact that the environment is just a complex system, isn't it? And one thing isn't going to change. Well, I was going to say one thing isn't going to change things, but the effects of coronavirus aren't going to be one thing, are they going to be many things? Um, so, no, but, but I think having said that, you know, the, the kind of the conclusion of eco-fashion being to thin the herd, as we've said, is is kind of that blunt instrument for a, for a very particular and very complex issue. Mm. Um, and as we know, blunt instruments for tricky, fine work <laughs> don't really have good results. No, but at the same time, I mean, I'm not, not saying I sort of support their ideas, but there is a case, I suppose, to be said that it's taken this extreme circumstance to make a lot of us realise that actually the technologies and things are in place. We can actually function still to a certain extent um, in a different way to what we have in the past. And maybe if it does force people to think about the world around them a bit more in a different way, sort of to view their relationships in a different way, um, that is a positive. Not saying that it's necessarily worth the deaths or anything, but I'm just saying that it's a positive that we can take yeah. from it at least. I mean, even just in the case of sort of human contact, I mean, I've, I've not seen anyone face to face for bloody months, it feels like, um, because I live on my own as well. So like um, the only human contact I have is the lady in Sainsbury's once a week, like, <laughs> and, and like my, my podcast with you, like it's it's absolutely bizarre. So, I mean, it does make you value those sort of connections, I guess. Um, yeah, definitely. But I say it, it is, it is, it is very, very, very strange. Um, and I mean, I kind of, I hope, I just say, yeah, I hope it kind of, it, coronavirus does, give people pause for thought and an opportunity to change to think how can we how can we do things better what you know what's what's gone on in our society and in our lives that you know now we've had this world-changing event do we really want to continue as we have been it's kind mm. of a it's an opportunity you know, it's an opportunity for change isn't it um and i think you know like kind of the eco-fascists want to seize this opportunity i think well it, as i said it, it is a good opportunity um but the way they want to go with it is obviously quite horrendous but you know if, if, if it becomes an opportunity whereby you know people say let's not con- you know let's let's make a conscious effort about consumption and you know big you know put pe- pressure on big businesses because we know that it's big business that makes lots of lots of the waste and consumption i mean that's Another thing about kind of eco- criticism of eco-fashion is that they kind of suggest that, um, well, the idea suggests that it's, it's human beings that overconsume when most of the consumption is is multinational corporations, um, and so kind of that's obviously, uh, you know, it's, multinational corporations are obviously a collective of human beings. I mean, ultimately they are made of human beings, but it's not like it's every person. You know, it's not like it's they're, they're a necessary evil or anything like that or they're not even necessary mm. you, could, you know you could, we could quite happily go back to um societies of quite small businesses you know small local businesses actually which i think a lot of people actually probably want i think lots of you know lots of people want to be able to go to and buy their meat from a butcher who they know who's friendly with them or you know their vegetables from a green or whatever but actually it's not it's often not convenient to go to three or four shops rather than the supermarket and obviously you want everything now and it all to be in season all the time so kind of yeah. it's i kind of hope that 
maybe kind of using this as an opportunity for change we kind of see it as well we, we use it as an opportunity for change but we also kind of see kind of the um necessary difficulties in a way mm. of kind of of what what this globalized world um oh, sorry, not, the difficulties of of achieving um kind of oh, uh, well in this example kind of localism in a globalized world and what that mean what that really means um even actually to say well if it, if it means you've got to go to three shops to get your shopping rather than one then you know that can be for a lot of people that's worth it isn't it so I think well yeah that... i mean this is this has been interesting because one of the outcomes of the recent sort of um scarcity in shops has been the fact that local shops have actually seen a massive increase a lot of local convenience stores because basically there's no loo roll in Sainsbury's, but there is in like the local spa or local corner shop or whatever, because basically everyone goes to the supermarket first, as you yeah. say. The problem is, of course, that what, what we need to, you have to wonder, well, what will happen when things get back to normal? Because as much as you like to think, yeah, okay, um, we'll go to a few smaller shops instead. It doesn't make any sort of economic or logical sense to do that from the, from the fact of, well, thinking, well, I've only got so many hours in my day. Um, yeah. I've only got so much money it's cheaper and easier for me just to go to one shop and buy things cheaper than to go to multiple small shops. And so there's a sort of, a, there's a chicken and an egg thing there as well, isn't there? Because obviously they have to put their prices up because they've got to compete with supermarkets. But then at the same time, the supermarkets in themselves sort of take away from the high street. So, cause we had, we had, we, I mean, we've done a podcast in the past about the sort of death of the high street and yeah. the rise of online and the impact that's having on society. I, I wonder then, I mean, yeah, you're right. I agree. I think there is an opportunity for change in all sorts of ways. But at the same time, I, I'm also I'm worried. I mean, I'm worried on two hands, actually. I mean, I suggested this in a previous episode. I'm, I'm worried that things will go back to just being exactly as they were before, that it will just be a sort of a speck, as it were, this a little blip in the human timeline. Um, but I do also wonder if maybe that we're going to see a, a complete reverse in the sense of I'm worried that people will overcompensate in the reverse. So while we've not been going out or not been going on holidays or not been polluting, Will we suddenly all go crazy, and that'll just sort of counteract the good? Oh, you mean we'll all have a big blowout and go on mega holidays? And well, I mean that's 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 the, I mean that's my concern anyway. At least I think yeah, because that's because I because because I think that's what sort of a lot of people, um, might do. Maybe, I mean I can imagine you know the day lockdown is lifted, a lot of people text their mates and say see you in the pub on friday night or whatever um but i don't know yeah i, I can imagine people you know book bigger and f- holidays that are farther away this year when, when once kind of this is over if it ever if it's ever over um or you know if it lasts till the end of the year or whatever then you know next year will be the time but um Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I kind of I hope that this is well. This thing isn't it? it's hope, isn't it? That people re- realise what what this means, what what this what kind of our yeah, lack of le- period of less consumption, should we say? What it, what it means, and actually that it's a positive thing. Because um, one of the other things that I've as you as you were sort of making the point just then about kind of the blowout idea I, I i thought you were going to go down a different route and 
it was that um kind of counter well when you mentioned sort of counteracting i, I thought you were going to sort of uh, an idea about counteracting sort of technological progress oh right go back to the yeah. basics well yeah kind of because i've seen a lot of people or you know sort of being interested in technology sort of you end up in conversations with people about technology don't you um and a few people i've sort of ended up not you know in the past sort of few months before kind of lockdown and whatever um conversations where people say oh, technology's gone too far now you know it's it's you know it needs to be scaled back a bit this sort of idea um and i was uh, so so that was where i think you were uh, i thought you were gonna go actually you didn't but um i think that's an interesting idea as well because it's not quite well it's not fascism in the sense that people are going to be killed from this idea but it's kind of this idea that um you can't have this technological advancement because it's it's too much for me to cope with and it's that sort of aspect of well it's about control isn't it and people don't want to feel like they're out of control and, and technology firms control them and i think kind of coronavirus presents quite a um you know an interesting um and dangerous kind of situation in terms of technology companies because if you see lots of um you know google facebook apple i think well google and apple are working together on something but you know it's um, tracking of um people with the virus surveillance basically mm. um and i think we've mentioned it before about how um you know there are a few kind of authoritarian or semi-authoritarian governments that are quite happy to uh you know expand their surveillance laws and, and legal bases for surveillance and and spying and basically erode privacy and that those once those things are out of the box they don't go back into the box very well very 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 easily and yet lots of people seem to be clamoring for an app that's gonna that's gonna monitor and, and track people with the virus so that other people with it can be other people who've interacted with them can be informed that they might they're at risk or to get tested or whatever um and i mean you know, on the one hand, obviously that's that's you know it's it's a really good use of technology in that way is a really good um, way to yeah, to track outbreaks and people with the virus and people who are real and people who might have interacted with them and whatever else. But you know the erosion of civil liberties that goes along with it is obviously massive, um, and I suppose that's kind of it's, well. It's, uh, I'm not quite sure. I don't know if I don't, do you think that's fascism. I'm not quite sure if it's. I mean, it obviously, um, it's, it's, a, it's something that would be associated with 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 fascist. Um, well, it's a slightly sort of totalitarian in a sense, but it's yeah. sort of totalitarianism of surveillance capitalism, I guess you yeah. could say. Um, I mean, I, I I take your point, but I think I mean normally I would agree with you completely about that because I'm always nervous about these big corporations and surveillance and stuff. But there is a point to be made as well that actually this technology has actually been really beneficial in this time. I mean, I read a piece the other day about how we couldn't be doing this as we are. We couldn't have responded so well as we have sort of 10, 15 years ago, because there wasn't sort of group chat software and so forth. Like, I mean, I listen to I listen to Radio 5 every every day and um, half of that, most of their shows are being presented from presenters homes, like the setup and the video conferencing and all this stuff. It's allowed them to basically do their jobs from home, um, yeah. which is crazy. I mean, the fact we're even recording this podcast over sort of um, messaging software is is like is unthinkable sort of 10 15 years ago and in a way that's actually allowed us to continue operating 
a lot better than we might have. I mean, even just the fact that I'm having some human contact with you now over video messaging, I couldn't, we couldn't have done that sort of 15 years ago, could we? So there are benefits as well. But I mean, yeah, you're, you're right. I do take the point about the, the tracking and surveillance because I mean, that, that, and that's the thing with, with emergencies, um, which ties in quite a lot with my own research into biopolitics and things, and this idea of necessity and emergency and you're essentially opening the box um, because this 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 sort of tracking technology is seen as being necessary in during this emergency. Then obviously you get this idea of the unending emergency. There's always an emergency that's going to sort of carry on. So yeah, there are problems as well. But yeah, as you say, it's really much the, the double-edged yeah. sword of um, technology and progress and surveillance. Um, so say notions of emergency and necessity. I think it's some of the stuff that Giorgio Agamben's been talking about. Ah um, yes. <laughs> He has been talking about some stuff. His new stuff is a bit um, controversial in the sense of his so, new stuff yeah, is the other way deluded. from. <laughs> well, yeah, kind of it goes the other way from ecofascism in terms of it's more, it's just incredible. It's incredible. Sort of suggests that the virus isn't that bad, and the measures to you know lockdown measures are, are too, um, and that you know it, it, for. Locked measures will ferment a state of emergency that should be resisted. Um, you know, I've, I've seen the blogs about does society need to be protected, from, which I thought was a really interesting way of framing it. Um, but yeah, I mean, because you're you've used his work quite a lot. Have you have you been keeping oh, up with these blogs? And have you got any thoughts? Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. Normally, I'm a big, I'm quite a fan of sort of Gambon's work, really. But his his latest outburst, I think. I mean, myself and I, uh, my friend Emily, who's also a, a Gambon scholar, um, pretty much agreed that he's, it's a bit, um, it's gone out on a limb with this one, because basically he's taken his normal sort of um, biopolitical stance of saying, OK, right, the state's out to get us um, and all this sort of state of exception stuff. But then he's gone, well, actually, he, he seems to be saying that, that it's a bit of a conspiracy. And in, in, in this way, he, he, it sounds like he's turning himself into a conspiracy theorist, which sort of undermines yeah. his previous arguments, because he's saying, well, Okay, like, like like you said, that this is all just a a tool for the state to basically extend its power, and actually, ultimately, it's not as bad as we think. But I think in this case, he's actually undermining his own argument. And actually, I, I lost a bit of respect for him in his uh, his, his most recent outburst. You do have to wonder. Um, well, yeah, I think a lot of people have lost some respect for him because it's. Um, I mean, it, it's quite obvious that. It, it is an emergency and so you know the state is going to create a state of emergency and so um trying to try and denigrate it when it's de denigrate a, a state of emergency when it's legit when it's well i'm going to say legitimate but you know it's, it's for a real reason it's not like i mean i've not read his work for a long time actually so you know and it kind of my recollection of it is that his argument is about using this using states of emergency in a way they're not they're not real states of emergency quote unquote um but then using them to advance state power whereas this is a real emergency and so it kind of for me it's kind of it's a different situation to what um he would really be criticizing yeah no exactly because i mean his his example is like the war on terror for example that's yeah. a that's a that's a perfect example of what he's describing he also talks about like sort of concentration camps and sort of world war ii and sort of the de dehumanization and and um 
sort of zones of um, like where where law doesn't exist, basically what he calls his state of exception. But yeah, this this whole idea here is that actually we we sort of consent to this emergency as long as it is just an emergency and it just stays as a sort of temporary measure. I mean, to me, it felt a little bit like he was just trying to grab some attention. Um, <laughs> his article, his, his 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 material, I have to say, so it was a bit problematic. But I mean, obviously, I think there's scope for us to maybe talk more about his work at a later podcast. I mean, we're sort of at the end of, of um, our normal sort of recording slot now. Um, so it's been a bit of a varied podcast. So we've been a bit wild, right? <laughs> yeah, ecofascism, coronavirus, environment, social change, and a bit of our pal Giorgio Agamben at the end. Um, I don't know if there's a conclusion of sorts that we can draw from all of this, but it's, um, I suppose it's one of hope maybe that things will change. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think, I, kind of, I think we've kind of, we agree that this is an opportunity for change. Hoping but that people that, do seize upon yeah. it, yeah. But that, that the change should be, um, you know, positive and we shouldn't jump to conclusions on false premises like ecofascism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But that, that's the that's the problem. Everyone's stuck at home, so the keyboard warriors come out in force. That's the thing, isn't it? <laughs> They're yeah. even more out in force than they are normally because they've got too much time on their hands. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm that's the problem. A lot of them, uh, so yeah, um, please let, let's hope there's some nice environmental change and down with the fascists. That's our um, absolutely <laughs> conclusion to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Just come right, Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the In the Zone podcast with Mike Ryder and Josh Hughes. For more podcasts and interesting chat, visit inthezonepodcast.com.